what's going on? It's Chris Carino. This is the voice of the Nets. Today, we talk with the esteemed NBA writer for Sports Illustrated, Howard Beck. Uh, first, just to acknowledge something great that happened at Barclays Center the other night. On hand, I'm not, I'm not talking about the Nets' victory over the Washington Wizards on a Friday night. Although it was their, uh, at the time, was their uh, fourth straight win. It was their sixth straight home victory. I'm talking about what happened at the 414 mark of the first quarter. That's when TJ Warren walked over to the scores table and checked into the game for the first time in 703 days. I got to think that for every one of those 703 days, TJ Warren thought about that moment before checking in and walking onto the floor. You know, recently we had a, a podcast with uh, Nat Butler, the, uh, the NBA photographer, steam photographer, and I asked him that whole Jimmy V thing about what makes him cry. And he said, seeing some of these athletes achieve something, knowing the sacrifices, knowing what they have done to get to that point, makes him emotional. And you, if you're casually watching that game, you see T.J. Warren walk in the game. You're excited about what he can be for the Nets. You're excited about the kind of player he can, he can be coming off the bench. He can score. But do you realize it was December 29th, 2020, the last time he had played in a game? And when you think about his story, great score at NC State. Dad was there as well. You know, good career in the NBA, playing on some bad Phoenix teams, but then goes to Indiana and in that bubble in Orlando, playing in that vacuum, all of a sudden he makes this big splash where he has 54 one game, he averaged 30 some odd points during the bubble and he's known as Bubble Jordan. And you're thinking he is going to ascend now as to one of the great scorers in the league. Can't wait to see what happens next season when they start playing the games again for real. And what happens? Four games in to the 2021 season, stress fracture in his foot, tries to come back, happens again, aggravates the injury, doesn't play for 703 days. And here he is coming in at the 414 mark, Gets the ball in the right wing. Ball fake, gets Boucher up, moves into a 15-footer. And Jacques Vaughn said it after the game. I was really curious to see what was going to happen. I didn't know if he was going to be, his legs weren't going to be there. He was going to come up short. He was going to be a little too hype, go too strong. No. Nothing but net. For TJ Warren. What a great moment. These are the kind of moments, people think sports writers and people who cover the game are looking for controversy, looking to stir the pot. No. Looking for great stories. He's a great story. And that's a segue into Howard Beck, sports writer, guy who has made his career covering these kind of stories. And we're going to talk about covering a team like the great late 90s, early 2000s Lakers. His time with the New York Times, just starting out with the Knicks there and then on to the Nets when, he first, uh, when they first moved to Brooklyn. I, I, don't even, I can't even summarize everything we talked to Howard about. I mean, from Twitter to the lockout back in 2011, what that did for NBA Twitter and NBA writers. So many great things we discuss with Howard Beck. So 
without further ado, on the voice of the Nets, it's a conversation with the great Howard Beck. What up, Beck? <laughs> What's happening, Chris? Good to see you. Good to see you outside of an arena. I know. I know that's a thing, the what up, Beck, because I would see it on Twitter all the time. But I don't know the origin. There is an origin, um, yeah. and it's a really cool origin, actually. And the funny thing about it is, if not for Zach Lowe, who, of course, popularized this on his podcast, if not for him bringing it up, I think the very first time I went on his podcast back in the Grantland days years ago, I would not have remembered this myself. <laughs> so I go on Zach's podcast, however many years ago it was, and we were going to talk a lot of Shaq and Kobe in my Laker years and whatever else. I think I'd probably just written something that was rooted in, in that uh, previous life of mine. And Zach says, you know what I wanted to mention? Because I always thought this was really cool. And he remembered this moment during the NBA lockout in 2011. It was toward the end of the lockout. There was this one big meeting where they brought all the players together. Normally, it's just a handful of the players on the executive committee and maybe mm. some player reps or whatever. This was supposed to be the entire membership of the players union. And they were all gathered at the Sheraton in Midtown Manhattan. And when the meeting was over, we're all staked out as we always are, the media waiting for these guys to come out so we can talk to Billy Hunter and Derek Fisher and just see what the status of things is. And players are now just kind of filtering through the lobby. And Kobe Bryant walks out of this conference room that they'd all been holed up in. He sees me. He's got sunglasses on. Key, key, <laughs> Uh, detail, according to Zach, because <laughs> yeah. Zach's memory is way better than mine. Kobe has his sunglasses on, sees me. I don't know if he actually lowered the shades or not, like cool movie moment like you would do, uh, and says, what up, Beck? <laughs> and so Zach remembered this and thought it was the coolest thing because Kobe had, in the midst of all these people, all this gaggle of people and players and media and all this stuff, seen me and actually acknowledged me. Um, and so Zach thought that was really cool. He drops the what up, Beck. And so then every time I've come back on the pod, it's what up back to start the pod, which then has just taken off on social media and everything else. So yeah. um, there you go. There's the origin story of uh, of the phrase. It's always what up this, what up the whoever. And I feel like that that time, that, that 2011 lockout um, was sort of where NBA Twitter kind of took off, right? And guys like you, when you mentioned Zach, it, like the people who were covering the lockout, it seemed like that was the origin. It created this sort of uh, Twitter metaverse that's still kind of trying to struggle to hang on right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a whole other thread to go or a whole other rabbit hole there with Twitter. Yeah. But um, I think you're right, Chris. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it, but I, I do think so. You know, Twitter, I think, came about somewhere in like, what, 2006, seven, somewhere in there. I got on, on in 2009. It's actually comical to look back. I got on Twitter in 2009 because somebody, uh, uh, an agency had reached out. I was working at the New York Times at the time. An agency that, um, I can't remember what their, their role was, but they were working with Shaq and other athletes, getting them on Twitter. This is back before anybody had thought to get on Twitter. Twitter was just like, oh, it's this microblogging service. It's like Facebook, but without all the photos and you just, 140 characters or less. And it, you know, that was how we called it, microblogging. So yeah. They had pitched a story and I was like, yeah, I'll do a story. So I was going to get, I think I got Shaq on the phone for it maybe. And then this woman who was working with him on this, and it's comical to go back in the, the Times archives and find this online because it's just, it just sounds so ridiculous trying to explain what Twitter is and what you would use it for. And it's, it's such a staple <laughs> of our world now that yeah. 
that that story is is kind of hilarious looking back. But so yeah, that's 2009. The lockout's only a couple of years later, and I do think you're right. I think that was kind of this coalescing point where it was the first time that a major event in in the NBA world was being documented on a minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour basis by reporters using Twitter to blast it out to our then hundreds of followers or maybe a few thousand followers, whatever. It was yeah. me and, and Ken Berger and and my my now colleague Mannix and, and a bunch of other folks. But that's also when I discovered people like Jason Concepcion Network, one of the funniest people in, in on NBA Twitter, Network became network during that time. In fact, I have falsely taken credit. I will continue to falsely take credit uh, to Jason's chagrin. I I discovered him. Ken Berger and I discovered him. We were retweeting the hell out of him because he was so freaking hilarious with the stuff he was saying, things about David Stern. He was like fictionalizing conversations. He And it was just so uproariously funny. And of course, we we needed that. We need like whether it was Jason Concepcion or others, we needed that. That was our contact with the outside world. We're stuck in these hotel lobbies and sidewalks and all these places for hours waiting for these meetings to end on all these stakeouts for months. And um, yeah, that was that was the first probably big uh, NBA Twitter moment. Well, and, and and that's the kind of thing that builds a, pro- a platform like Twitter or and, and, and specifically... NBA Twitter because you're you do you have it there's an immediacy to it so people are constantly waiting for the next update they're looking you know at that time it's like all right what's going on with the meetings is there going to be this agreement are they going to walk out so people and NBA fans are glued to it and yet at the same time there's all this downtime which then creates like you said, some creativity and some and some entertainment, and then a lot of back and forth. And I remember, you know, who's ordering pizzas and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's it's, and I still think that, and, and we're going to get into your career and and kind of the, the 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 journalistic changes that have gone on. But when it comes to Twitter, I know there's a lot going on right now where they think people think you know Elon Musk took over Twitter and. You know, Twitter might get killed at some point. And I understand some of the stuff outside of the sports world that is problematic with what Elon Musk is doing with Twitter at times. But I feel like in the sports bubble, like it it shouldn't affect it. Like the things that make Twitter beneficial to sports fans. I mean, as long as we get away from the fake accounts, I, I still think it's it's the perfect platform for it. Or do you so, disagree? I, I, I disagree slightly. Um, and I will say, like, I have, over the course of the last few weeks, set up outposts in various places, as a lot of people have. More, not because I'm one of these people who says, I'm out, I'm done with Twitter. Although I know several friends who have left Twitter. Their accounts are still active, they're, or they're just in suspended animation. They may come back to it. But as of right now, I've, I do have several friends who have decided this is just not for me right now. Um, so I have I have created an account on Post. I have created an account on Mastodon. I am posting in those places far less than I do on Twitter because the critical mass is still on Twitter, right? Twitter is like yeah. you know tens of millions of people or whatever. And these other outlets, these other new uh, newer social media platforms have have far fewer people. And until everybody migrates or decides where we're all setting up, it's 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 difficult. I'm there in these other ones mostly as a backup plan, right? And the backup plan is not because I'm going to throw up my hands and say I'm done with Twitter. I don't think I'm going to get there. It's more that I'm not convinced Twitter's going to survive right now or in what form it will survive. 
because what Elon Musk is doing is alienating not just users, but advertisers. And you know, he's, you know, he's, he's laid off a lot of people to try to streamline their budget. But if he continues to alienate advertisers and people flee the platform because it's no longer considered to be safe or civil because he mm. keeps inviting Nazis back on it, that's a problem. So yeah. it, in the event it doesn't survive, I wanted to be somewhere else and have an established account and established following and have, have some time to build that up just in case. So that's my strategy personally. I don't, anticipate that I'm going to leave Twitter myself. And I don't anticipate that Twitter will just die. I also think that if if, if Elon Musk continues to do things that threaten its viability and potentially drive it into the ground as a business, there's probably a, it's probably a means to an end. It's probably a way for him to find some other way. He, he was trying to get out of it before. Yeah. He, he had buyer's remorse from the second he signed the, the, the damn deal. Yeah. But somebody... Worried. <laughs> somebody, somebody will have it, right? Twitter will exist, and it, and it may be under some somebody else's ownership. And I would love for that to happen sooner than later. Um, but in the meantime, to, to answer your question, Chris, because I disagree slightly on this, the reason NBA Twitter and sports Twitter is impacted is is a couple different things. One, there's now a lot more bullshit back on the platform. You now do have to deal with more racism, sexism, bigotry of all sorts, um, because he has allowed a lot of banned accounts back. That's a problem. So it's not, it's, it's, it's suddenly a little less welcoming. The other thing is that because he has just decimated the departments that were in charge of moderation and in charge of things like spam and fake accounts, well, that's the thing that, as you just alluded to a minute ago, that can degrade our experience even as sports people on Twitter. If Even if we could somehow, you know, wall ourselves off from all the other stuff, from politics, from hate speech, from everything else, our little corner of Twitter is still, uh, you know, uh, warped by and often infiltrated by, screwed up by bots, spam, bad actors of all kinds. And that degrades the experience. And my last thought on this is just this. Twitter was a lot more fun in those early years. You, We talked about the 2011 lockout. Those early years, 11, 12, 15, 17, whatever, whatever that ends, I'm not sure when it ends. There was a time there when sports Twitter, NBA Twitter was a lot more enjoyable and the banter was a lot more civil and lighthearted. And at some point it became a lot more toxic and a lot more hateful. And these fan bases that think that it's their job to constantly cape for their, their team in a way where they have to aggressively go after anybody who's critical of their team. And they feel like they're the, the defenders of, of their team's honor and all this, this crap. And it's gotten a lot more vicious. Everything mm. has gotten more vicious, but sports along with it. Yeah, I wonder though if that's just a microcosm of the the, the state of the world and sure. not necessarily the platform. But I guess when it comes to people in your profession, though, um, social media and especially Twitter, it was like a blessing and a curse, I guess, at some point as well, because sure. it did get your stuff out to the masses. And at the same time, you don't know whether you're, you know, I always think of guys breaking news on Twitter. Well, shouldn't they be breaking news on the site that they work for through the, or through the outlet that they work for? You're doing it on Twitter. You're, you're supporting Twitter by doing that. But at the same time, it, it's weird, right? It's, it's, it, it can help your, it can help push your agenda and what you're doing professionally, but it can also, it hurts the people that you work for, I guess, sometimes in a way. It's a, it's a really mixed bag on a bunch of different levels. Um, yeah. So a couple couple quick thoughts off the top. I started my career um, 
at a small town paper in Davis, California, where I'd gone to school at UC Davis. I, and I graduated and I immediately went to work for the local paper, the Davis Enterprise. The Davis Enterprise had a circulation of, I believe, 10 to 11,000 people in a city mm. of like 50,000. So that's actually a pretty good, pretty good penetration. Yeah. And, uh, but it's a very active, engaged city, a very, you know, college town. Everybody's really into the local politics. So, and, and local news. Um, I bring that up because I now have I don't know how many of these people are, are bots or how many followers are bots or whatever, but you know, I have 190 something follow 190,000 something followers on, on Twitter. When I think about the first paper I worked for it had a circulation of 10 to 11,000. And then yeah. I went to the Ventura County star where the, the circulation was like a hundred thousand. And then the LA daily news, which was, I think maybe 200,000. And then eventually, you know, New York times is you know over a million, but by the time I left the LA Daily News, I think your circulation had probably dipped to maybe 150 or so, that I would have more Twitter followers. Again, I don't know how many of them might be bots, but yeah. that I have more followers on Twitter than I had at the LA Daily News subscription base is like kind of freaking mind-blowing. <laughs> yes. And and so that I now, I personally can engage with folks or blast out my stuff to them or have conversations with them and in, in, in larger numbers than I ever had at a newspaper I worked for is, is amazing. But also, it used to be, when I first started, if somebody really hated or loved something that you wrote, they wrote a letter to the editor. <laughs> and then eventually, maybe they would leave, leave a long-winded voicemail. I would get these both in Davis and in LA, whatever. I, I had this guy, there was a guy in LA, and I, I can only just hear his voice because he loved to do this. If if somebody really wants to try to get under your skin when your name is Howard, they'll do a very sarcastic <laughs> version of Howie. And I have friends who call me Howie and it's not, it, it's not, I don't consider it like a dig at all. But if you go, hey, Howie, and in a certain way, a certain tone, right? <laughs> yes. I have this guy who would call. So this is just the midst of like the Shaq and Kobe wars, right? And I, had, I, I, I never took sides in this whole thing. As far as I'm concerned, I'm a news reporter. I do. I'm not a pundit, and I'm not taking sides in this whole thing. It's not my place. But if I wrote anything that seemed too maybe I, I, I guess sympathetic toward Kobe in any given moment, this guy would leave these long-winded messages on my voicemail at the LA Daily News in an office that I never went to but I could retrieve my voicemail remotely. Hey, Howie, how come da 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 da, -da? <laughs> And then after he's done with that point, it would be, he'd, he'd start up again. Hey, Howie. And every single thing would be this. But yeah. that was our interaction with our readership and with fans back in the day was just a one-way thing. A letter to the editor, a voicemail. Twitter was the first time where it was like, somebody can say, hey, um, actually, uh, David Lee got 13 rebounds last night, not 12. Oh, great, thanks. I'll go correct it. Or it might be, um, Hey, you know, you're, you're, you're being, you know, mean to whatever fill in the blank player, or I, you know, I, I vehemently disagree with your point, good sir. Um, <laughs> and so we, and then I could have a discussion with them. And early on, I actually tried to respond to anybody who I found in my mentions re replying to me, because I thought that's just what you should do. We should have this conversation. It became untenable at some point, both in terms of volume and in terms of uh, people being dicks. Um, but Early on, I thought this is such a great tool that we can now engage with our readers in a way that I never could for my first 15, 20 years in the business or whatever. Um, but you're right. It's also changed. You know, breaking news breaks on Twitter now instead of for our outlets. Um, the outlets themselves, the companies themselves initially tried to regulate that. And I, I think the dam broke at some point, you know, in the mid-2010s. Um so it, it's it's a mixed bag, I think, for media. But I, I do think the ability to promote our stuff, um, 
both on an individual basis and a, and, and a media company basis is, is phenomenal and has opened up all these new avenues and, and different ways of promoting your stuff. It's allowed us to find sources um, or just smart people. When I say sources, I don't even mean like an un- anonymous source. It may just be like, oh, like there's this assistant coach who's on Twitter. Oh, oh or there's this scout. Or, oh, there's this analytics guy who's working independently, who's got this great new tool. Or like the number of people I have met, you know, kind of quote marks on met, but met first on Twitter before meeting in real life who hmm. are in the NBA space, whether different voices or people with just different um, expertise on the sport. It, it's it numbers probably in the hundreds. Um, and so it has opened up our world so much. And so it is, Twitter has on the whole, I think been a, a, a positive force, but it has warped a lot of our job too. Yeah. And, and you're also giving away the story sometimes. And I think once, you know, you mentioned that small paper you worked at in the Bay area, at least those 10 or 11,000 people were paying for the newspaper every day. Yeah. And once I think it was, it's, you know, we could get into a whole podcast about, uh, newspapers and you know, how they started giving it away. And then people don't want to pay for it anymore. So they're, they're clicking on it and they go, why do I have to, even though the cost of a subscription to a newspaper is probably a heck of a lot less than when you used to dole out the money for the newspaper every day. Yeah. Um, but maybe we digress a little bit here. Let, let's get, let's get into some more stuff about you. I want to go through and then uh, come up to some other stuff. Cause you and I have had great conversations over the years in press rooms and, and interview rooms. I mean, everything from basketball to, you know, if uh, Adam Duritz was an NBA player, who would he be? <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. And by the way, I went through your old uh, Full 48 podcast and I realized you had Adam, Adam Duritz on yeah. your podcast and I listened yeah. to it and it was fantastic. Thank you. And even though you're doing now the crossover, um, it still does exist in the, in the, in the world, it never goes away, those podcasts. So they are on there for anybody to listen. Not all of them, unfortunately. Like the the, the whole catalog isn't there. There's, there okay. must be some limit. Like if you, I don't know if it's because it's no longer an active podcast or if it's just like any podcast, they don't keep everything in perpetuity. So like not every episode's there. I'm glad to hear the Adam Duritz episode yeah, is still like there. That was 2018. Yeah. yeah, that's a, by the way, that's the lead singer for the Counting Crows. If anybody doesn't know, Howard and I are Counting Crows fans, and a big, and he's a big Warriors fan, and a yes. and a friend of Steve Kerr's. So you're from the Bay Area, yes. What made you start writing? How did you get involved? So I, I grew up in San Jose, and you know I love a good origin story in my own writing career, write about other people that I'm writing about. So at, at some point, I, 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 I don't remember when this coalesced in my mind, but I realized I do have my own origin story for my career. <laughs> and it's, it's the catch. And depending on how old the listener is right now, they're either going like, oh, yeah, and, or they're going, I have no idea what you're talking about. Capital T, capital C, the catch. Uh, go to YouTube and you will find it. Joe Montana hitting Dwight Clark in the 1982 NFC Championship game and starting... Uh, what became the 49ers dynasty of the 80s. Um, I was 13 years old. Don't do the math. I was 13 years old at the time (laughs) that that happened. Um, And actually, technically, no, wait, 13? I might have been 12, actually. But, um, Which is the prime spot for guys like us, wherever, where you fall in love with sports. And I think this is a really interesting thing to think about, too, right? For anybody who's a big sports fan, there was probably a moment, a, a, a team, a player, a play, a game, a series, something that really, like, cemented your fandom and yeah. just and, and sparked something in your brain 
and in your body where you just went, holy shit, I can't believe what I just saw. That was the most exciting thing I've ever seen in my life. That was the catch for me. I watched it with a bunch of friends. I, I can remember whose living room I was in. And the Niners up until that point, you know, as a kid growing up in the Bay Area, like the Raiders were the kind of the dominant NFL team. The Niners were almost like a minor league team and they were terrible and they were an afterthought. Um, but that was it. Like that was the moment that my fandom really was cemented, my mind blown, my sports fandom cinched. And from there forward, that's why that's when I'm definitely consuming the entirety of like the San Jose Mercury News sports section every morning. My 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 father had the, the newspaper on the on the table every morning anyway. Up until that point, I think I was mostly reading like the comics section or something. Um so I'm I'm reading a ton of sports and I'm reading not just Niners coverage, but A's, Giants, whatever. But the Niners were my team. And that moment was my moment. And the more you, you just kind of immerse yourself in reading the newspaper, for me, it it just, I don't know, it, it kind of like started some other thought processes in motion, right? And, and this is as I'm going through junior high and into high school. Well, as of, of course, as you get deeper into high school and you have to start thinking about college and everybody's asking you, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And like, what do you want to study? And these are big questions to contemplate at age 15, 16, 17. And in my simplistic teenage brain, as I'm trying to think about all these things and I'm like, well, I'm decent at writing. I got good grades in English, whatever. I think it was an honors English my junior year of high school, whatever. And like, and I love sports. I love, I love football, whatever. Like, oh yeah, people get paid to go to these games and then write about them. Like, that's ridiculous. I should do that. <laughs> it was like, it was nothing more sophisticated, Chris, than that. That it's it's as as simple and ridiculous as that. And that was it. And so I decided, I don't know if this is going to work or not, but I'm gonna, that's what I'm going to try. So when I went to, to, when I applied to UC Davis, when I was accepted at UC Davis, they don't have a journalism program there. So I, I majored in English just for the, the writing aspect of that. And, and just for the, you know, it, it, it's adjacent. Um, and... And I went to go get a job at the the California Aggie, the student newspaper, which was a Monday through Friday paper printed five days a week for my entire wow. college career. Um, I went in on the first day of orientation week and said, hey, I want to write sports. And they said, okay, go talk to the sports editor. And I wrote a story like a week later on the men's cross country team. Um, and there it was, like I, I, I was off. Like it just, and I just never stopped basically. <laughs> was there a person in your life who had a great influence on, your style? <sighs> style. There's, there's not a person. There's probably like a hundred. Um, yeah. Because when I'm, when I'm reading the Sounds of Mercury News as a kid, the guy whose work I loved the most was Mark Purdy. Um, Purdy was the columnist, one of the columnists, um, but I think the main columnist, you could say, for the Sounds of Mercury News at that time. And I loved Purdy's stuff. Um, he was, on the days he wanted to be funny, I thought he was really funny. On the days he wanted to be poignant, he was poignant. On the days he wanted to be moving, he was moving. And he he just had this ability to shift gears. And I just really loved his style. And so he was like my first sports writing idol, right? I'm, I'm, I'm We're growing up in a non-internet age, right? So I don't have access to, I don't know about Jim Murray down at the LA Times. I don't know, mm -hmm. like I know about who some of the San Francisco Chronicle columnists are maybe, but like your guy is the guy who writes for your paper. Purdy was my guy. Ironically, and, the new quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers as of yesterday is, is named Purdy also. Yes. And, I digress. And when I was on Twitter yesterday and I kept seeing, you know, Purdy this, Purdy that, Purdy's great, whatever, I'm like, 
laughing in my own head because I, I really yeah. badly wanted to make a Mark Purdy joke and I couldn't come up with a decent <laughs> enough one, so I, I, I skipped it. Um, but And at some point, Mark Purdy himself weighed in on that because somebody asked him, are you related? And they're not. <laughs> okay. uh, um, but that was my first sports writing idol. I got to tell him that years later, embarrassed the shit out of him, but it was such a great moment for me. Like when I was finally like old enough, established enough, and met him as peers to be able to say that. Um, like just just a, a fantastic moment in my life to be able to to do that. Um, and then years later, because we have a lot of mutual friends, we don't know each other that that well, but we have a lot of mutual friends. And so Mark Purdy retired like three, four years ago. And I got to go, it coincided with when I was going to be in the Bay Area anyway, our annual family trip to go see family. And um, I got to be at Mark Purdy's uh, retirement lunch and I, I got to give a quick spiel in which I embarrassed him all over again. So that was fun. <laughs> um, but there have been a lot of influences. There's uh, people that I competed against on the beat in LA, um, Sports Illustrated writers that I grew up on, like Frank DeFord and, 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 you know, and then later Jack McCallum. And it's, I think the key to being a great writer, and I'm sure you feel the same as a broadcaster, is that you listen to the people or read the people whose work resonates most with you. And there could be a bunch of people who are all really good at it, but some just hit you a different way than others. And it's not because they're better or worse. It's just we all have our own styles and our own tastes and the way our, our, our brains are wired. And so it's a lot of different people because each of them had something where I thought, oh man, that's that was really fucking good. Like, I, I wish I could do that. Maybe I can do that. Maybe I should try that. And then you attempt things and you experiment. And, you know, to the extent that you have a voice, you don't, I don't even know when my, my voice as a writer became me. I had an editor at Bleacher Report who one day hit me back after I'd filed a story. He's, and I think it was about a specific sentence or something. He goes, oh man, this is such a Howard Beck's line or something. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what that is, but okay, cool. Like I, I guess there's something identifiable that I've established or, or created over time. You, you don't, you're just yeah. in it, right? You're just doing it. You don't know. No, it, um, it's like, hey, it, yeah, at that point, you'd already written for the LA Daily News and the New York Times, and now you're there. So you did. I mean, you didn't know it. You didn't realize it, but you did. I, I, I always looked at, you know, my broadcasting career when I was in college, I worked with Marty Glickman and Marty was a legendary uh, broadcaster. But what he did is he gave me structure and play by play. He said, this is how you, hmm. this is, here's, here's my view of play by play. I want you to create a picture in the mind of the listener. I want you to be very detailed and let them be able to see the game in their mind. And I remember that was a revelation to me because I had grown up listening to radio, but a lot of TV also. And, and, and guys on TV don't describe enough as you do on radio. And I said, all right, I'm going to be the guy who describes the game better than anybody. And then I'm going to be me. You know, so it's, I think there's those, those influences kind of give you a little structure. And then from there you can, you can branch out. How yeah. long, how long after you left Cal before you end up at the LA Daily News covering the Lakers? How, how long a period of time was that in between? Um, graduated from UC Davis in 1991, spent, um, four years at the Davis Enterprise, which is much longer than you're supposed to spend at a small town paper. Yeah. Right? You're, the whole thing in newspapers, especially in that era, like you got to keep getting to the next bigger one. But I, I, I liked living in Davis. My, I still had friends who were is still in school who were, who were at UC Davis who were a couple of years behind me. So I just, I just kind of chilled for a while. I, I, I moved from sports to news 
while I was at the Enterprise. So I ended up covering City Hall for my last couple of years there. And when I left the Davis Enterprise in 1995 for the Ventura County Star down in Southern California, it was still as a news writer. I was, again, covering local government in Ventura County. Um, and I did that for two years. Um, also where I met my now wife, um, who was also working at the Ventura paper and, and is from Ventura. Wow. So a, a fortuitous uh, move for me. Yeah. Um, so I met the Ventura County Star for two years. And toward the end of that two years, I get this call one day from Mike Anastasi, who had been the sports editor of the Davis Enterprise who hired me, who was now the sports editor of the LA Daily News. And he says, hey, um, I know you've been out of sports for a while. Uh, but we've got an opening and I'm wondering if you might be interested. Uh, we just lost our Laker writer, a guy named Mark Stein. Um, <laughs> some of you may have heard of him. Yeah. Um, Mark's gone off to the Dallas morning news to go cover the Mavericks. So we have an opening on the Laker beat. And the crazy part of this story, as I retell it over the years is I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> And listen, the job wasn't you there. You still for wanted the- to cover uh, cover uh, uh, budget meetings in Ventura County, uh, planning commissions, yeah. you know, uh, you know, tax abatement hearings. Um, it. So I had this struggle early in my career, both at the in college and my first few years after college. This internal struggle of does any of this stuff even matter, right? Sports and, you're talking about, yeah, yeah, it. And, and like, it was a passion of mine and I was a sports fan of a sort. And, but it, it's, I got more into journalism broadly during those years, during my formative college years. And I, I, I did the first, I was in sports for my first two years in college. And then the, le- the rest of my time in college, I was news and I was eventually editor-in-chief and I'm running the whole thing and I'm, I'm running the editorial board and all this other. And I, I just really got into journalism broadly um, news coverage, editorial writing, everything. And so my 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 interest had moved way beyond sports. Um, and the more I felt comfortable doing either or or anything under the, the roof of a newspaper and to cover everything under the sun, it I did start to have this struggle of like, well, does sports really matter? Am I wasting my time? Is this really the way I should be spending my career? Sports, you know, it's it's the toy department is the is the cliche in in, yeah. in newspapers. And um and I did. I, I wrestled with that for years. And so some of the period that I was out covering news instead was because I thought, well, this is the stuff that matters. And yes, you and I could sit here and joke about planning commission meetings and, you know, uh, you know, zoning laws and all this, all these things that I covered that are kind of dry, but especially in Davis, where there was this very energized community, that stuff really mattered to people. People got like as, as, as passionate about that as they get about, you know, yeah. uh, you know, Le- LeBron James, you know, but trying did it to get matter the- to you is the question you had yeah. to eventually answer. Yeah. And and that's the thing, right? Like it sports is by definition more fun to write about. Yeah. Is it always more gratifying? That's where I had to find another way. I had to I had to retool over the years to find my way back to it in a way that made sense to me. And what I find the the, the position I finally came to or the piece I finally made with myself was everything matters. Everything matters because our lives are not any just one thing. And yes, sports are escape, but sports are also something that, while they can also divide people and create all kinds of stupid toxicity on Twitter and in the real world, sports also bring people together. They bring families together. They stoke our passions. They 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 give us the full range of human emotion and drama. 
it, like it's as important as music or art or anything else. It is a it is a part of the fabric of 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 our world and of our lives. And so, but it took a while to get back to a point where I could say that and feel it and believe it and not feel like, oh, but this is trivial and unimportant and I and I'm wasting my time doing this. So yeah, I did pause before I before I agreed to interview for that job. Um and I had to interview with other people because, you know, he he was not gonna my 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 old friend from Davis was not going to just bring me in. It would be a little almost nepotistic. So I interviewed with you know, all the other editors and the editor of the paper and the managing editor and all these other people. And once they cleared me, then it was like I had a decision to make and I decided obviously to do it. Um, but there's a sliding doors moment there where, you know, I, I, first of all, if the phone never rings that day, I'm not talking to you right now. Um, but it was a very specific, you know, opening, a very specific moment. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it changed my life. What is the period when you jump in to the Lakers? What's going on there with the day? 1997. 1997. So that's when it's starting to to roll. Shaq and Kobe have just finished their first year together. Kobe's just finished his rookie season. Shaq's just finished his first year with the Lakers, which was injury marred, knee. Um, And so 97, 98 is their first full season together with Shaq healthy. And Del Harris is the coach. Um, Eddie Jones and Nick Van Exel are still playing on that team. Eldon Campbell. Um, and that's my first year on the Laker beat. Uh, Scott Howard Cooper's covering them for the LA times and Brad Turner's covering them. I think at that time for, was it Riverside or one of the other papers? But so there's a a group of people who are now like my new peer group who I'm learning from every day. And I, I bring that up because you had asked earlier about writing styles and this and that there's also reporting style. And I would, I'd never been in these, in these scrums I'd been in scrums before as a, as a college sports writer, but like being in, in in NBA arenas, being in, you know, pregame with the coach and then going pregame locker room, postgame locker room, practice days and seeing how it all operates. I was taking a lot of cues from, from the veterans, from Scott Howard Cooper, from Brad Turner, eventually from Tim Kawakami and then Tim Brown. Um, and, and you're learning to me, it was osmosis, right? I'm just kind of soaking it all in and then trying to find my way and trying to find my voice in that way too. Right? Like, how assertive to be in those scrums and, 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 and when to be comfortable enough to pull off with a guy separately. Um, you're just figuring it out on the fly. There's no rule book for any of this and there's no lessons that anybody can give. In a way, it's funny because I, my first two years as the radio voice of the Nets, they go to the finals both years. So here's mm-hmm. my, you know, I'm just really learning how to do the job and I'm at the highest level Sometimes you ever, I always think like, I would love to go back and be able to do those two finals over again and knowing what I know now. And I got to be the same thing. You're, you're, you're just starting a really be a NBA beat writer for the first time. And it's the Shaq and Kobe Lakers. (laughs) I mean, that had to be an amazing experience for you and that you may never reach that again. Not in the same way for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I'm never going to be a beat writer on a team again, um, because it's hell. <laughs> um, it's, and it's getting harder and harder and it's getting harder and harder. It's a really hard job, folks. Like it's a yeah. really hard job. Um, and people think like, oh, it's such a fun job. And so we're never supposed to say the reality. We're never supposed to, because nobody was, ah, I don't want to hear it. Like this, you yeah, have the dream job. You get paid to watch games. Right. Yeah. All true all true and we shouldn't complain, but every job has its challenges. Every job is hard. And that one's really, really hard. I, I was a beat writer for 16 years 
seven on the Lakers. And then in 2004 is when the New York Times hired me and I, I come to New York and I start covering the Knicks. So over, and there was of course, you know, brief detour to the Brooklyn Nets when they got to Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. But over 16 years, seven on the Lakers, eight plus on the Knicks and, and a few months on the, on the Nets. 16 years of 82 game seasons, home and road, um, a lot of playoffs, even when the Knicks weren't in the playoffs, the Times is still sending me all over the country to cover other teams in the playoffs, covering the finals every year. It, it's fun at times, but it is, it is exhausting too. Um, and, and it's stressful and it's deadlines and it's just all kinds of stuff. Um, so I'm not going to do that again, right? I will not replicate the Shaq and Kobe experience in part because I'm not going to be a beat writer again. And the beauty of being a beat writer, as opposed to being a national writer, as I have been for the last nine years is that you really get to know the guys on a much deeper basis, right? You're there every day, for better or worse. And, you know, yeah. you'll get on their nerves and they'll get on yours because you're around all the time. But it's every practice, every shoot around, every game. And so the relationships there are stronger. Like, I know guys around the league now who I can say, oh, say hello, whatever. Like, Fred Van Vliet was in town the other night to play the Nets. And, and like, Fred, you know, you know, chit-chatted with him a little bit because we've gotten to know each other a little bit over a course of a couple different interviews. But I don't know anybody as well as I knew those Lakers or even those Knicks. If I see Malik Rose, if I see Quentin Richardson, guys who I covered on the Knicks, Jamal Crawford, you know, David Lee, if he pops up somewhere, whatever, like all these guys who I I met over the years, Derek Fisher, Rick Fox, Robert Ori, you know, like it's a different kind of relationship. And so I I do miss that a little bit, like getting to know guys at that level. Um, and to be honest, I didn't, when I got on the beat, I knew who Shaq and Kobe were, obviously, in 97, even if I hadn't been in sports for a while. Um, but nobody could have known at that moment what was going to happen. A lot of guys, like Shaq was just starting what was his, it would have been his sixth year, I guess, and Kobe was starting his second. Nobody knew for sure where this was going yeah. at all, right? And and there were any number of ways that when it could have gone, happened very differently. I talk all the time about the conference finals in 2000 and the conference finals in 2002, the two bookends to their three-peat, both go to game seven and both of them, they're hanging by a thread. They could have had one championship instead of three. And when you're in the midst of it anyway, you're just trying to make deadline every day. You're just <laughs> trying to keep your head above water. You're just trying a lot of times not to be crushed by the day-to-day pressures of, of this job to say nothing of Shaq and Kobe, you know, almost trying to kill each other at times. So you're, you're too in the job and too exhausted by it most of the time to enjoy it. There are a few moments that stand out, but overall, I it, it's more now. I can look back on it and go, man, that was pretty freaking awesome. And mm-hmm. I can see Jay Adande, or I can see Tim Kawakami, Brad Turner, guys that are, you know, Bill Plaschke, people that I covered the Lakers at the same time with, and we can reminisce, and it's all wonderful. But in the moment, <laughs> it was like survival a lot of the time. Did they play off each other? Like, so would you, would Shaq talk to you about Kobe? Kobe talk to you about Shaq, that kind of thing? No, because the way it worked back then, 98% of the time was Shaq was talking all the smack and and saying these little sideways things, these these little coded things that we knew who he was talking about yeah. and they were shots at Kobe. Kobe never did it. Kobe famously finally fired back after years of this stuff. In the final year that they were together, Kobe famously fired back via Jim Gray 
in an off-camera interview, right? Jim Gray is an on-camera person, but he had an off-camera interview. And so Jim Gray goes on the air one day to say, I have a statement from Kobe. And here's what he says. And he proceeds to read like seven straight paragraphs of Kobe just kicking the crap out of Shaq about him delaying his toe surgery and doing it on company time and Shaq being lazy and not working hard enough in the off-season and all this stuff. And holy moly, like Kobe had just been like just internalizing, saving this all up for years. And in one statement given to Jim Gray, he basically unloaded everything of of years of pent-up frustrations that frankly were, I think, indicative of not just Kobe's feelings, but to an extent, the Lakers as an organization, because there had been a lot of frustrations with the way Shaq handled things sometimes. Um, as great as he was, and, and as much as he did for them, yeah, there were frustrations. But Kobe, generally speaking, was not talking shit about Shaq. It was usually Shaq talking about Kobe. There were a couple of times that Kobe fired back, or that Kobe just... He gave an interview to Rick Buecher when uh, Buke was at ESPN, the magazine, in the middle of um, the 2000-2001 season, so the year they eventually win the championship against the Sixers. Kobe gives an exclusive to Rick Buecher in which Kobe talks about, I'm not going to turn, people want me to turn my game down, I'm going to turn my game up. Hmm. And that wasn't a shot at Shaq, but it was involving Shaq, because Shaq's, of course, the one who wants him to, like, you know, play the secondary role. Um but it was more coded language a lot of the times. Like Shaq would say things like, you know, you know, if I'm done there with single coverage, you know, you got to feed me the ball in the post. Guys taking ill-advised shots, this kind of stuff. And if he's saying guys are taking ill-advised shots, chances are he meant Kobe more than, yeah. it might've been other guys too, but mostly Kobe. Yeah. And, and what you're covering, I mean, the Lakers in LA at that point are, in terms of interest, they're one, two, three. I mean, people like the Dodgers, but I mean, the Lakers are the thing. It's different yes. in New York where you've got, you know, you got the Yankees and the Mets and the Giants and the Jets and, and it's different even, but even though the Knicks are huge now, I, I want to just skip ahead to your, you go from Los Angeles Daily News to the New York Times, right? That was a direct jump. Yes. And you're on the Knicks beat and that, it, much like the Lakers, I mean, you talk about the years you did it. Those are like dog years. I mean, there's, <laughs> yes. there, there is a lot of stress there. Um, but I, I want to skip ahead and you can go back and you could talk about anything maybe that we've glossed over, but that one year now you're, you're with the Nets because the Nets are in Brooklyn. Uh, were you living in Brooklyn always when you came to New York? I had one year, I call it the lost year, one year in Hoboken, New Jersey. Okay. Um, and then Which is right we moved across to, the river. If anybody doesn't know, it's right across the river from New York City. Yeah, that was where we landed when we first moved. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a rushed, moving to New York from somewhere- You dragged your wife from California out there, yes. right? Um, in a three-year span, by the way, 2003, we got married. 2004, we moved to New York. 2000, early 2006, our daughter was born. So like, that was a, that was a lot of stuff in a very short period of time. <laughs> um so we landed in Hoboken because you're on one of these rushed, like three day, like you got to come at, well, the, the times flew me out and they gave us, you know, uh, you know, some, some, uh, you know, real estate consultant or whatever it was. And you go and you, you, you run around and you look at as many places as you can in a very short period of time. And you're trying to find something that's in your price range and it's close enough, but it's, it's it, New York is, it's, it's just very challenging place to move to as people can imagine, especially from 3000 miles away. So we landed in Hoboken. Didn't take. A year later, we moved to Park Slope, Brooklyn. We're now in Carroll Gardens, but we've been in Brooklyn for 17, over 17 years. Um, so when I got on the NetSpeed in 2012, that was, you know, I'm still at the New York Times and, and the editors were saying, listen, this is a big freaking deal. Brooklyn has its own team for the first time since the Dodgers left for LA a thousand years ago. Um, and they knew like, you know, I'd been on the NetSpeed for eight years at that point. 
you know, the Knicks is, is a pretty exhausting beat and, you know, a change of pace plus cover the nets in my own backyard. Um, yeah, you sure. were going up yeah, to Westchester. Great. Yeah, you were going up to Westchester. Yeah, a lot of, yeah the, the, the driving up to Westchester multiple times a week for practices and shoot-arounds was, was, was tough. Um, and yeah, the Knicks, just after a while, it, it's, it's kind of the same story year in, year out. So doing something new and different, like, oh, I'm going to cover the nets and, oh, they're right up the street. I could walk to games if I want to. Um, that that was like just kind of a refreshing change, and so I yeah I, I eagerly agreed to that, and it lasted all of in 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 actual in the actual season, right? Like November, December, Jan- I think it was like three months, and that was the year that the Knicks did finally get out of their rut. That was a fifty four win season when they get to the second round of the playoffs, and so Carmelo, somewhere in the middle yeah. of that season, they said we need you back on the Knicks because you know the Nets the the novelty had worn off a little bit with that team. And the Knicks were having a huge season, so they pulled me back. The the one of the payoffs for that though was literally my first game back on the Knicks beat was the night Steph Curry went off for like fifty four, whatever it was, like Steph Curry's signature breakout game hmm. when he hits a bazillion threes. Yeah, I was there that night because it was my first game back on the beat. Wow, and but but I I was interested, you know, the you being living in Brooklyn for a while there before the Nets get there. And now it's been 10 years now. They're celebrating 10 years at Bar- yeah. Barkley Center. This is the 11th season, but it's 10 years. 2012 was when it all started. Ha- what were your thoughts when they were moving to Brooklyn and now that you've seen it now for 10 years? Has it, has it taken any root? It, it, what, what, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously, you know, I live here. My daughter was like six and a half, I think. Um, when the Nets moved. And so I was trying to think of it through the lens of, you know what, you can't move to Brooklyn and suddenly, you know, Prokhorov's talking about convert Knicks fans to Nets fans. And, you know, there's all this this hope and, and belief that, well, if you're in a borough of two and a half million people and it says Brooklyn across the chest, well, then naturally they're going to want to root for the Brooklyn team. The Knicks have these long standing um, loyalties. Yeah, yeah, generations and these roots that go very, very deep. You can't just change that in a day or a season or probably even 10 seasons, to be honest. But I saw it, I would, I would look at it through the lens of my daughter and her peers in school because I was looking, I'd go pick her up from, from school and I'd want to say, I'm looking around, like how many kids are wearing like a Nets jersey or a Nets hat or Nets shirts or whatever. And especially early on, cause you know, the gear was cool, right? The black and white, you know, yeah. arrangement was just a cool thing. So I did see quite a bit of, of Nets gear. And so, you know, there's there's no great way to gauge this stuff. But initially, it seemed like there was a lot of enthusiasm, for sure. Um, to be honest, you and I have probably talked about this over the years. I've certainly written it and said it many times. Like, those early Nets teams just weren't that interesting. They were good, but not great. Darren Williams, Joe Johnson, Brooke Lopez were a sort of big three during a, a, a big three era in the NBA. But eh, not quite. Not exactly LeBron, Wade, Bosch level, right? Um not even, you know, Carmelo, Amare, Tyson Chandler level for that matter. And so there was, I wondered always about like, what does it take to establish um, those passions and those loyalties, right? Is it rooting for a team through all the ups and downs over years where you've had both elation and heartbreak and you've, re- you've experienced the full range of emotions and now it's, okay, I'm tied to this team because I've experienced it all with them. And then you pass it on to your kids. I don't know when like the full blossoming of Nets fandom where the where where the marriage of Nets and Brooklyn as a borough as a community as an identity that is it is distinct within the city of 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 New York. I don't know when that 
congeals or, or really, you know, yeah. cements. Um, I don't know that we're, I don't think we're there yet. My, my, just my, my gl- quick glance observation, right? Coming to a lot of home games, looking around on a daily basis to see how many Nets, Nets versus Knicks jerseys I might see around, you know, my neighborhood. You know, I don't know that we're there yet, but I also think like 10 years is, is a, is nothing. You know, the Knicks yeah. have been around for, you know, decades, you know, a lifetime for some people. And I think it's changed a little bit. You're talking about looking to see if it's Nets or Knicks, but it's really the NBA has become so where, where, you know, I know my son's friends are all either warrior fans, bulls fans, heat fans, thunder fans. Like there's just, it's not so localized anymore, but I do know this from having been married the last 20 years to a girl from Brooklyn. When you're from Brooklyn, it's all Brooklyn. And I do think going back to our conversation before about you seeing the catch when you were 12 years old, what's important is to get to to catch that 12 year old who's in Brooklyn. And that maybe, you know, maybe those uh, overachieving teams back in uh, 2019, maybe that did it. And maybe there's some 14, 15, 16 year old kids that are growing up right now. Maybe it's Kevin Durant now, Kyrie Irving, those kind of that are catching 12 year olds right now in Brooklyn who are going to have that allegiance to Brooklyn even after those guys are long gone. You just, you find your niche and, yes. and market to it. Um, you mentioned Durant, Kevin Durant's one of your favorite players ever to, uh, to watch, to cover. Um, what are you seeing from Kevin this season? I, 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 he's seems to be incredibly engaged to me, much more vocal and emotional on the floor. And his numbers are just, you know, 30 points a game. He's off the charts. Yeah, the one thing that's been consistent about Kevin Durant, like when Kevin Durant says, I'm a hooper, when Kevin Durant says, I'm just all about the game, that is not the universal thing in the NBA. You and I have both seen enough guys who are really super talented, who do not have the same passion for the game, who play it because they're good at it, who play it because they love the lifestyle, the money, whatever else. Kevin Durant's the guy who would do it for free, genuinely. Mm -hmm. Dude just loves the game. He's been incredible. And I also would just say this, like, given the miles on him and that he's three years removed from the Achilles, that he's playing at the level he is, is, is absolutely incredible. Um, and I know, you know, sports science has come a long way. Medicine's come a long way, everything. But um, I, I, I think it's absolutely remarkable what he's, he's been able to do and um, the, just the production he's put out there every night. And yeah. they've needed it, obviously. I think you almost take for granted what Kevin Durant is doing. I, re- I remember Achilles injuries used to be career-ending. You know, I think back to Dan Marino or, you know, Vinny Testaverde in the football and Kobe Bryant had it late in his career. Um, but, you know, they, to, to see what he does, it's just amazing that he's come back and has performed at that level. Yeah. And I want to touch, too, on, you know, they make a coaching change. You've been around Jacques Vaughn a long time, as I have. Um, I didn't think there was any doubt that Jacques Vaughn would be able to uh, do a great job with the Nets. He's just he's got such a great energy about him. And I think sometimes, and it, it, sometimes the right coach, a guy, it doesn't mean a guy wasn't a good coach, but maybe just wasn't the right guy for that team. And when I see Jacques Vaughn and the energy and the purpose that he coaches with, like he has a philosophy and this is what we're going to do. And it's not, it's not rigid, but his approach doesn't waver. 
And I've been really impressed with how he has taken to it. And I think probably having those couple of years in Orlando um, made him more prepared for this opportunity right now. Yeah. You know, you just don't know, though, no matter what a guy is as an assistant coach, you know, the whole cliche in the NBA of, you know, you're moving the 12 inches to your left and and that changes everything. Um, Maybe he's more ready now. I'm sure he, like he has said, I would not, maybe he said, he has said that he's just a more uh, fully developed coach now than he was his, his first opportunity. But I was struck by exactly what you said. And it was the, it was the writer uh, phrasing. I think you said the the positive energy or, or something along those lines. Every time I've been in those press conferences with him since he took over a few weeks ago, I'm blown away every time. It doesn't matter what the subject is and no matter how dicey the subject might be or how difficult the challenge is that night or that week, He's smiling. He's got this 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 contagious energy. Like I walk out of those pregame pressers with Jacques Vaughn, and I want to be like, "Yeah, let's go!" I want to like go run through a wall. Like, yeah, you're energized. Yeah, like it, it's and look, nobody is in front of us the same person as they are when they're actually like on the court or in practice or in the locker room, whatever. It's it's not it's not necessarily the same thing. But if Jacques Vaughn has the kind of contagious energy and positive energy from the podium to us, if that's the same as what's in the locker room and at practice, obviously that, that that's a pretty great thing. And there's so much of coaching. Yes, there's X's and O's and there's, you got a playbook and you got out of timeout plays and you got drills that you run in practice and how long is your practice and what are you focusing on at practice and how much film and how much of the analytics and da, 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 all these different things. There's ego management and a lot, a lot of different stuff that goes into great being an effective head coach. But your personality matters. Your communication skills matter. Your energy matters. And, you know, everybody loves Steve Nash, but it's an incredible contrast to Steve, who was so monotone on the podium. Again, just because he is with us doesn't mean he is in the locker room. But it's a noticeable difference in personality. And Clearly, this team needed a different voice. Like some other things have gone in his way, like gone his way. Like Jacques done a great job, and so I, I'm not diminishing that at all. But um, you know, the timing matters too, right? Like uh, they eventually get Kyrie back. Ben Simmons suddenly, eventually clicks, right? First Ben, you know, first you know, first Simmons is out for a while. He's playing, but he he doesn't look anything near what we are you know used to seeing from the Philadelphia Ben Simmons. Suddenly, Philadelphia Ben Simmons is back, yeah. and that matters. Joe Harris got healthy. Seth Curry got healthy. So there's there's some other things that have have been fortuitous for Jacques Vaughn along the way, but clearly uh, change in in leadership, voice, tone, um, all of that has mattered too. And you know you you can't help but be happy for him because again he just seems like such a a, a positive guy. Howard Beck, I'm mindful of your time. There are a million things we could go on for another hour about many things. We haven't touched on a lot of the things I wanted to get to, but we'll have you on again. I think you wouldn't mind that, right? I would. Absolutely. <laughs> my, my pleasure to come back anytime, you know, and uh, the rest of those conversations will squeeze into five minute uh, vignettes between press conferences at Barclays. <laughs> but I, but I, before I let you go though, I've been, I've been doing this and I'm going to see if it, if it catches on, but I, I, I like to take my subjects as you would be here today. And, um, Ask you these these three things. So when Jim Balvano, you remember the SP speech, yes. the never give up speech, it's always been very uh, important to me. I, I, I find a connection with that. And he said, to live a full life, you need to do three things every day. If you remember this, he said, you need to laugh, cry, sometimes move to emotions, good or bad, 
and uh, think, spend some time in thought. So I ask you, Howard Beck, it could be a person, a thing, whatever it may be. Uh, I know we're, we're movie buffs and music, but what makes you laugh, Howard? Ooh, what makes me laugh? That seems like a really simple question that, that suddenly uh, feels like it has a, a difficult or challenging answer or path to an answer. What makes me laugh? Um, the first thing that comes to mind is the, is, is, is a what it's, it's the unexpected because like we've been watching the white Lotus, you know, my wife and I, you know, we, we, we binged, um, reservation dogs recently and, um, mayor of Easttown. We finally watched, oh, that was um, great. and like some of these shows, like I, I find myself when I'm laughing out loud on the couch, it's not because it's something that is like straightforward comedy, right? It's not a sitcom. It's not watching, you know, uh, you know, Chappelle <laughs> do stand up or something. It's, it's, it's like these something awkward or unexpected or a little a little intonation or something. Something where you just go like, huh, it's not even a full laugh sometimes. It's just <laughs> yeah. kind of like, ah, that was, that, was, that, was a, that was a really clever little turn there. So it's, it's, it's like those little moments that I think I find I, I appreciate more now. Um, so off the top of my head, that's my answer. But there's probably, there's probably a better one. There's probably a good who if I thought about it long enough. But uh I don't want to drag out. It's it's always bad form on a podcast or radio to sit here and go like, uh, give me a second while I think about my answer. Well, so I'm just going to go. Our engineer Isaac Lee could edit out the dead spots. <laughs> so if you wanted to take time, um, all right. So let me move on to the 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 cry part of it. It could be a and I know, and it's funny because you you brought up Mayor of Easttown because I'll give you one for me. I didn't expect to react to it the way I did. I don't want to. Spoil it if anybody's watched this. I won't do a, a spoiler alert on Mayor of Easttown, which was a terrific HBO series. Um, Kate Winslet played a uh, Delco, you know, Philadelphia, Delaware area detective and missing girl and all this stuff. But the end of that, and I won't say what happened, but it may because I'm a father and the, you remember how it ended. It, yes. It got me. I mean, I teared up at the end of that. And not the obvious part of the, the plot, but what, what goes on there at the end, and I would recommend it highly. Um, that got me. And that's one of those moments. I'll, I'll cry at car commercials now, you know, <laughs> and maybe it's being a father and you're a father. Yeah. So is there something that you could point out to get a better insight into Howard Beck? What makes you cry? Um, get moved to emotions, tears. Yeah. So... I agree with everything you said about Mayor of Easttown, and I'll just say because I've, I've I've tried to promote this a few times recently, but people should check out Reservation Dogs, which is on Hulu, which is one of the most unique shows I've ever seen, and it mm. and it is the full gamut of human emotions and experience. Right, you will laugh, you will potentially cry, or at least feel choked up at times. Um, it's in, in, incredibly moving. I don't even want to say too much about what it's about, um, but it, it's 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 an incredible show, and the finale of season two of Reservation Dogs is so incredibly emotional. Hmm. And and I'm with you too, like as a father, right? Like, so, you know, it's one of these things where a fr- an old friend of mine, when my daughter was born in 2006, used this phrase that has always stuck with me about having a kid. And she says, it just grows your heart. Which I thought was an odd phrasing as an as a as a writer initially. And I didn't understand it necessarily. Um 
but I do now. And one of the things that it does, like you don't realize this, Family Guy, the, the, the TV show Family Guy actually did a whole bit on this at one point where it's like, I think all of a sudden like the dad is crying at everything. Yeah. And somewhere in the, you know, between 2006 to 2010, somewhere in those early years, I realized like, God damn it, what the hell just happened to me? Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I was always this like crusty, cynical journalist. Like even when yeah. I was like, 20, I was already a crusty, cynical journalist who, who might as well have been 60. No, that was at how, the drop of a hat. Yeah, I, and like, what the heck is going on? And um, so there is that. There is this thing where having, having uh, you know, a, a kid changes you in that way. Um, but then also, look, I don't want to get too, you know, morose here or, or, or you know, I don't want to put myself in this, in this mental space for too long. But, you know, like for a lot of people, the last few years have been, have been really tough and I've lost some people. Yeah. Uh, including my father in 2019 before the pandemic hit. Um, and then, you know, a few years before that, an, an aunt of mine. And then, you know, it's, it's like, like a lot of people I've lost and, and two friends in the last year, two friends who are in my own age range, by the way. So like very jarring, um, yeah. losses. So I think, you know, like a lot of people in this age range in middle age, um, you do spend more time thinking about these things than you used to when you're younger, especially when it's hit you repeatedly. Um, and it, it's not so much the cliche about, you know, appreciate every day, although all that's obviously true. Um, but it's, I, I find myself in idle moments, my thoughts drifting to those people a lot. And so I find myself now more fascinated with grief and stories about grief, um, people who have, who have written about the subject and dealing with grief and, and everything else in the process of it. Um, I don't even know where I am in all of that or whether I've, you know, have I dealt with it properly or not. I just know that there are moments where I find myself, you know, the feelings come rushing back out of the blue for no reason or something triggers a memory. And it's like, God, crap, I'm, I'm back in this. Mm. Um, well, I think that, I think that's a lot what Jimmy V was trying to talk about was that yeah. you would, you live these experiences and you have these relationships that eventually those memories and when they're lost will move you to tears. You're, you wouldn't be sorrowful or grief ridden if you hadn't had those close relationships. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, I'm just going to, the last thing I want to say about death and grief. Um, <laughs> there's an interview that Stephen Colbert uh, gave with Anderson Cooper mm. um, three years ago. And I found this, it happened right around the time that my dad passed. And so it was like good timing in that regard for me but they have this conversation. You can find it on YouTube. And it's just an incredible conversation. And that conversation, just thinking about it and watching it moves me to tears every time too. But Stephen Colbert has a definition of, of this, of, of the grief process and of, and of, and of loss. And Ooh, he, um, lost, his, he and, lost his father and, and siblings in a, in a plane yeah. crash. Yeah. Yeah. And so Anderson Cooper is asking him about that. And Stephen Colbert is, is, is pretty, I think, devoutly Catholic. And Anderson Cooper is, 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 is I think, basically an atheist. And so it's, it's, it's also this, this, um, this difficulty in saying like, well, like if without religion, like how do you find a way through the grief? Right. Um, and so the way we process that and the way you can, I don't know, all I can say is this, the, the conversation between those two and in specifically Stephen Colbert, who, again, I cannot relate to Stephen Colbert religiously. Um, we are from different backgrounds and I'm not particularly religious, but what he said really, really resonated strongly, and it was incredible. Um, and I encourage everybody uh, to go watch that, especially if you're, you know, like I am, still trying to figure <laughs> figure out how to deal with those kinds of emotions. As you walk into Barclays Center, here's the think part. You know, you have the uh, digital sign, the Oculus, 
outside the main plaza. <laughs> Love the Oculus. So anyone walking into the building, the thousands who pass through those doors, the people who come up from the subway can see that board. So if you were in charge of that board one day and you, can, you wanted to make everyone think about something, huh? what could it be an image, a phrase, a, anything up there? What would you want people to think about? Wow. Um, I love the Oculus. I, I used to obsess <laughs> about it. Uh, people got tired of me like praising it on Twitter. Yeah. I just think it's really cool. It's very unique. Um, you're kind of stumping me with this one. This really is the part <laughs> right. where Isaac would have to like edit, will, to, yeah. edit, edit out, edit edit out, out a 10 minute gap. Out. Yeah. You know, the real deep thinker here would be like, well, obviously there, there's this quote from Nietzsche that should be up there, you know, <laughs> Kierkegaard, you know, like you got to quote Kierkegaard. Uh, I... <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Um, you know what? I would probably just throw up some like completely impenetrable Michael Stipe lyrics from REM. Cause that's my favorite yeah. band. I would, I'd probably put up like Give the lyrics to, to, I put up the lyrics to begin the begin and then just let Great people song. figure it out. Great song. That's what Michael <laughs> Stipe was doing. That is what he was doing. He was like, I'm going to blurt out all these words. You're not going to understand half of them. And then when you see them on paper, eventually you're going to go, I still don't know what the hell you're talking about, but that's fine. Great poetry should not necessarily be that direct. You should have to think about it a little bit. And um, that's yeah. why REM is my favorite group. Uh, among the reasons is, is you, you do got to ruminate on it a bit. And yeah, and that, and that makes you think. Gets you a- thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Begin the Begins, a great song. Phenomenal song. Would that be your REM your favorite band? REM is my favorite band. Um, have been for for a long time. You ever had, you had a chance and to meet Michael Stipe? No, have not met any of them. I had a brief interaction with Mike Mills on Twitter one day while I was in an airport. <laughs> I think I was at SFO. Like it's it's weird that I remember this, but that's because that's it meant that much. I'm like, oh, Michael Mike Mills just responded to me. <laughs> um, Stipe, you know, spends a lot of time in, I think primarily in, in New York. Um, so there's, you know, as unlikely as it seems that you would run into somebody in New York, these things do happen here. So I'm always kind of hoping there's going to be some little, you know, chance encounter on the subway in uh, Soho or somewhere yeah. uh, one of these years. Have you ever, but, uh, I don't think they've ever, they haven't played Barclay Center, right? R.E.M.? Yeah, R.E.M. So they broke, they broke up they in broke 2011. Up before it came out, yeah. Yeah, they broke up in 2011, so before Barclays uh, opened. Um, the last time I got to see them live was at the Garden, you know, like a couple years before that. Um, I think I saw them here twice and, and a bunch of times out in California before we had moved. But... Um, but I, you know, I, I have, I have, there are several uh, seminal moments there in terms of, of shows, which I could bore you and your, your audience with or <laughs> not. But I will say this, to go back to the NBA, the, the, the NBA nexus here is this, 2011, during the lockout, which we had talked about earlier, I, in the middle of the lockout, I'd been covering it every single day. My editors one day said, you know what, uh, we need you to go cover this Red Sox uh, series for a couple of days because they were on that hellacious, uh, remember that September where the Red Sox had been like in first place and they just did nothing but lose until they just lost their way right out of the playoffs or whatever. There's this, this terrible downward spiral. And my editors, I said, no, 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 I got to cover the lockout. I gotta, no, you can, you, you can come back and cover the lockout for another month. It's going on for a while. We need you to go cover baseball. Just just rotated me in for a couple of days as, as the times does. And I'm kicking and screaming because I don't want to cover baseball and I, I feel like I need to be on the lockout. And so it's a last minute assignment. There's no hotels in, in Boston are, are terribly expensive. Anyway, I end up staying out in like some holiday Inn express in Quincy um, out of the very last uh, T stop on the, you know, the, the, the T that being their, their, their subway train. Yeah. And so 
I had to, to get to the game that day. There will be a point here in a second. To get to the game that day, I had to get the Holiday Inn shuttle driver to take me out to the T-stop then to catch the T into Boston to get to Fenway. I'm standing on that uh, platform in the middle of, to me, middle of nowhere. There's nobody else on this platform. It's just a, it's just this platform with me and some rats and tracks, and I'm just <laughs> waiting for a train. And I'm sitting there flipping through my then BlackBerry, I believe. <laughs> and there's a tweet on the official REM account that says, REM has called it a day. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what? Wait. It doesn't mean what I think it means. No, no, no. It's probably just some like, it's a promotion for something. It's a, it's a new single. It's something. I don't know what it is. But then I clicked the link. And sure enough, that was their announcement that they were breaking up. Wow. So you always remember where you were. I know exactly where I was. And I was freaking devastated. And here we are 11 years later. And I think I probably still haven't gotten over it. <laughs> no. Um, what, what about, uh, you have a favorite music venue in Brooklyn? I actually do. Like we've we've seen concerts. We go to a lot of live shows. Um, my wife outside and I, of Barclays Center, that would be. Yeah, you know what's <laughs> funny? Barclays Center. The the Times sent me to go cover the first of the eight straight Jay Z shows or whatever when they yeah. opened the building. Um, only hip hop concert I've ever been to. Uh, and and but that was the also the only concert I've been to at Barclays up until a few weeks ago because none of the artists that I normally would see had come through here or 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 I'd missed. Uh, because I was on the road or whatever. I, I literally say, not seen another see, concert. You didn't see Pearl Jam there in 2013? No, I wish I had. Uh, I was at both shows. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember why I, we missed that one. But we saw Arcade Fire last month. Oh, and okay. that was fantastic. And so it was the yeah, first time great. I got to see a concert at Barclays since Jay Z in 2012. That's <laughs> a long time, um, Howard. But my favorite venue, uh, there's a place called Brooklyn Made that just opened up uh, a year or so ago. I think it opened up in 2021. And, you know, we've seen, you know, we've been to the Bowery Ballroom, we've been to, you know, Town Hall, we've been to, like, we, you know, we've been to, like, almost every concert venue in, in this city, I, I feel like. Brooklyn Made just opened, and it's instantly one of my favorites um, for a couple reasons. One is the the way they designed it is it's very shallow. So instead of it going, like, you know, hall style, going far back, it's it's, like, horizontal. So even if you're at the back of the room, you're still very close to the stage. And also not for nothing, the first concert we saw once we could see concerts again as we're coming out of all the COVID restrictions was Band of Horses at Brooklyn Made. First time I'd been to Brooklyn Made. And the the, the, the venue just has this really cool vibe to it. It's really intimate. Um, it's a, it's it's just, I don't know. It, it, you know, there's an energy to places that you can't really define yeah. the, the reason for. Great vibe, but also Band of Horses. It just seemed like they were so thrilled just to be on stage again. We were thrilled to be able to be at a concert again. It was just one of my favorite nights in a in a concert venue in a while. So Brooklyn Maid's my answer there. Excellent answer. Howard Beck of Sports Illustrated, the crossover pod with Chris Mannix. Um, we'll do this again. Thank you so much, Howard. I really appreciate you taking the time, buddy. I'll see you soon. This has been a lot of fun, Chris. Thanks for having me. My thanks so much to Howard Beck. You can read him at Sports Illustrated, follow him on Twitter, um, and the crossover pod with uh, Chris Mannix is a great listen. My thanks to Isaac Lee, our engineer. Thanks to Tom Dowd, our producer. I'm Chris Carino. Talk to you next time here on The Voice of the Nets.